Lord Jesus, you are the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, and you were born in the flesh into this world uh, just over 2,000 years ago to grow up and live and teach and then, Lord, to die on the cross and to be raised on the third day. And, Lord, the, the world has never been the same since. We thank you for your coming, and Lord, now you sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven interceding for us. You are the risen Christ who will come again, and we pray soon, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come. But Lord, uh, of course, the timing of that is in the hands of the Father. And so, Lord God, as we are on this earth, as there is so much turmoil, so much rocking and reeling, Lord, we have the Spirit as believers. Uh, we know you. We know that you have uh, the entire history of this planet, of this world, in your hands. Nothing happens, Lord, without your say-so. And so we thank you for your sovereignty now, Lord, as we open your word and look into this passage, uh, the context of which is, is the early church, when the, when the church was first birthed, we pray your blessing, we pray your presence. We pray that ultimately, Lord, you would be speaking to us through this word today. In the name of Jesus, amen. So the author of both the Gospel of Luke and another book called The Acts of the Apostles was Luke. Luke was a Gentile, and Luke was a physician, and Luke was not one of the 12 apostles. When Luke wrote the gospel that bears his name, and when he wrote the book of Acts, he intended that both of those two books would remain stitched together. He intended them to be read together as a two-volume continuous story. But then in the second century, the two books, Luke and Acts, were divided from one another, resulting in what we now have in our Bibles, where Acts follows on the heels, not of Luke, but of the Gospel of John. It is separated off in our Bibles from the Gospel of Luke. But again, to reiterate, Luke and Acts originally were meant to be read together. And like every other biblical writing that we could possibly mention, Luke Acts has been artistically ordered and expertly fashioned. To show you uh, just a, a smidgen of this, right at the start of his two-volume work, so we're looking at Luke Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In that opening of Luke, we see Luke's concern there to discuss the fulfillment of what had been promised in the Old Testament. In those opening verses of Luke, he talks about other people having written about the things that have been accomplished or that have been fulfilled among us. And he says that it seemed good to him also, to Luke also, to write an account of the same. 
And so we have this concern as the Gospel of Luke opens to report on the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, the fulfillment that has come in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And then as Luke's Gospel closes, he repeats the same concern, only this time the concern for the fulfillment of the Old Testament is in the mouth of Jesus himself, right at the close of Luke's Gospel. So Luke 24, 44, Jesus is talking to the Emmaus Road disciples there about fulfillment. How everything written about him about Jesus in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, in other words, in the entire Old Testament, had to be fulfilled. So then, we have these fulfillment bookends, if we want to call them that, in the Gospel of Luke. A concern for fulfillment at the beginning of Luke, Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, and then again, a concern for fulfillment as the book closes. And... As Luke's gospel closes, what the disciples are charged there to do is to witness, right? To witness about and to proclaim Christ and his fulfillment of the Old Testament in his death and his resurrection and the forgiveness that has come about as a result. Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 24, 46 through 48, Thus it is written, where? In the Old Testament scriptures. It is written that the Christ should suffer, it's written about in the Old Testament, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning, notice, from Jerusalem. You, disciples, are witnesses of these things. So note the emphasis there on witness as the Gospel of Luke closes. And notice that because in the opening of Luke's second volume, the Acts of the Apostles, we have a return to the same idea of witnessing. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Just as the book of Acts is kicking off, the risen Jesus says to his disciples, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be what? My witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Well, to tie all of this talk about Christ fulfilling the Old Testament and the disciples witnessing about it, we can say this, that in the sermons that we have recorded in the book of Acts, which are many, in fact, in the sermons of the book of Acts, the apostles, as they preach, are largely doing this. The apostles' preaching, not to mention the deacon Stephen's preaching, is a witness to how Christ fulfills the Old Testament. 
In their preaching, they are showing how Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. They are focused in their preaching on the good news, the gospel, the euangelion, the good news of how his cross and his resurrection had been prophesied in the Old Testament and were now fulfilled. And friends, in this focus that the apostles have, we find that their preaching in the book of Acts sounds very different than a lot of preaching that happens in our day. The preaching of the apostles in Acts sounds almost foreign to a lot of preaching that happens in our day, where, where so much preaching today is solely concerned with us in the now, in the present moment, how we are to get along better in life, how we can manage our problems, how we can be better, and how we can succeed. The apostles in Acts are concerned with showing Christ. Amen? With showing Him from the Scriptures. With exalting Him. Displaying Him. Allowing their hearers to behold Him so that they repent and so that they believe and so that they are saved, which is their primary concern as a human being on planet Earth, to be saved by Jesus Christ. The primary concern of the apostles in their preaching is the glory and the greatness of Jesus Christ. And may it be our primary concern at Snowden Baptist Church also. Now, over the next several weeks, many weeks, our plan is to explore together just two of the sermons in Acts. Just two of them. So for the next few weeks, we're going to work slowly together through the Apostle Peter's sermon in the book of Acts, Acts 2. And then starting after Thanksgiving, the plan, Lord willing, is we're going to go to the Apostle Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 13. Now, we might have decided in this little series to look at uh, the great sermon by the deacon Stephen in Acts chapter 7, or other sermons from the Apostle Paul, for example, uh, Acts 17, or Acts chapter 20, or we could have gone also to the Apostle Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3, see how many sermons there are in the book of Acts. But I wanted to limit this series so that we are finished with it just prior to Advent. Preaching is a major part of what happens in the book of Acts. As the theologian Alan Thompson has put it, he says this, for a book called Acts, much of it is teaching. And that's very true. This book is unusually loaded with sermons. And these sermons in Acts have an impressive range, as we read them, an impressive range of settings, an impressive range of occasions, uh, and an equally impressive range of responses that follow after each sermon is preached. But here's something important to see, friends, that in the book of Acts, the primary way 
in which the church grows is through the preaching of the word in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the primary way that the church grows in the book of Acts. So all of that so far has been intro. (laughs) So let's go now to Acts chapter 2, so Peter's sermon. And Peter's sermon, we need to understand, follows on the heels, right on the heels of a major biblical event, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God at Pentecost. Now this morning we've already mentioned Acts 1 verse 8 where Jesus commissioned his apostles to be witnesses from Jerusalem first of all and then to the ends of the earth. Here in Acts chapter 2 we're in Jerusalem and Peter is going to witness Christ. He's going to show in this sermon how Christ fulfills the Old Testament and he's doing this, his audience is largely a Jewish audience here. Just a further word or two about the context of the sermon. Again, what happens right before the sermon is that the Spirit of God falls in the upper room and there's a a miracle of speaking that takes place And then there are a group of devout Jewish people who come around and there are several verbs that are used in the story. Verbs that describe the reaction of these Jews as they hear the miracle of speaking. So in Acts 2 verse 6, if you have your Bible open, Acts 2 6, these Jewish people are bewildered They just step inside their shoes for a minute. They are bewildered, it says. And in verse 7, they are amazed. And they are astonished. And then they begin to ask questions and inquire about what's going on. And then down in verse 12, they are amazed and perplexed. Scratching their heads, but astonished. And some of them ask this question. What does this mean? This miracle, this thing that's happening, what does this mean? Others mock. And they say that the ones who are filled with the Spirit must be drunk. They must be inebriated. But it's their question in verse 12 about the miracle, that question, what does this mean? This is the question that really is the launching pad for Peter's sermon. And so we pick it up at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the 11, with the other 11 apostles, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Now, That word translated as addressed, that is a word in the original Greek that describes bold address, bold speech. And the word actually is used in other contexts where spirit-inspired utterance is happening, spirit-inspired utterance. So Peter here is filled with the spirit, okay, we learned that back at verse 4. Peter had been in the upper room when the Spirit came, and now Peter, filled with the Spirit, is speaking boldly in the power of the Spirit to his audience. And what does he say? He says, 
men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only, in Hughes' translation, 9 a.m. <laughs> it's only the third hour of the day. In other words, it's a little too early in the morning for these people to have gone to the tavern to drink copious amounts of alcohol. They're not drunk as you suppose they are. Now, don't miss the humor here. There's a little bit of humor here in the text. Peter is filled with the Spirit <laughs> as he begins his sermon, and he starts off with a touch of humor, right? Interesting. These men are not drunk as you suppose since it is the third hour of the day, but this, note that word, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, when Peter uses that word, this, he's referring with that word to what's happening in the moment, right? The word this refers to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This, this outpouring of the Spirit, this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. Now, the Old Testament prophet Joel had written his little book about 550 years prior to these events that are taking place at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 550 years. When I was 24 years old, my brother and I, this is before we were both married to our wives, we took a road trip through the northwestern United States. And one of the things that we did on that trip is we visited Redwood National Park in Northern California. And on the day that we were driving toward the park, we had a few hours in the car, and I was in the passenger seat. And so I decided to pick up, uh, we had a little travel guide with us. I decided, because we had time, that I'd pick up this little travel guide. And I began to read about what we were going to see once we got into the park. I read about the coastal redwood trees. I read that they are among the oldest living things on planet Earth. I read that these trees can live for over 2,000 years. I read that some of the trees in the park were over 300 feet high, imagine, with diameters that can be 20 feet, with bark that can be up to 12 inches thick, 12 inch thick bark. I read that the trees have a built-in fire retardant and that they uh, have an insect resistance also. And amazingly, I read, so I'm going through the statistics, that a single tree can weigh in excess of 1.6 million pounds. Well, as I read about the trees, as I sat there in the passenger seat of the car, I was becoming more and more amazed. And I was becoming more and more excited to actually get to the park and set eyes on everything that I'd been reading about. And then finally, when we arrived at the park, I was not disappointed. I was now experiencing what I'd only been 
reading about, and I felt astonished just by the sheer magnitude of these giant trees. I'd never seen anything like it before, and as you walk through that park, you feel so small. <laughs> it's actually a very humbling experience, just an amazing experience. Now, friends, the time between reading about the trees in the car and actually experiencing them at the park, it was only a matter of hours. In the case of our scripture text today, 550 years had elapsed between the writing of Joel's prophecy and the experience of it, the actualization of it. Five, over five centuries, imagine, the Jewish people had been reading the brochure in the car, so to speak. They'd been reading about something that they had yet to experience, this, this unique, powerful, astonishing pouring out of the Spirit of God. And now here in Acts chapter 2, Joel's 550-year-old prophecy was fulfilled. They were experiencing what Joel had written about, and their reaction, of course, is amazement, bewilderment, perplexity, and astonishment. And so in verses 17 and 18, Peter begins rehearsing the prophecy that Joel had written about in the second chapter of Joel's book, Joel chapter 2 and verses 28 to 32. The prophecy described what they were now experiencing. And he quotes the prophecy almost word for word here. Almost word for word in Acts chapter 2. But in his apostolic authority, Peter makes a few small alterations. Because he's an apostle and he could do that. He makes a few small alterations to what Joel had said. So Peter says... And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. What's Peter saying? He's saying that the miracle that had happened here in the upper room that everyone is so bewildered about and astonished about, this is God fulfilling the prophecy of Joel that we just read. The event in the upper room explains the prophecy, and the prophecy explains the event. This was a new thing that was happening in the history of redemption. Now notice there in verse 17, Peter says that this pouring out of God's Spirit, it was happening in the last days. Notice that. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. What we notice, if we read the original prophecy of Joel in Joel chapter 2, is that the phrase last days is not there in the original prophecy. Peter, in his apostolic authority and filled with the fresh outpouring of the Spirit, changes the wording here, something only an apostle can do. We dare not ever change the wording of Scripture. But Peter can because he's a Spirit-filled, appointed apostle. 
Joel had said, and it shall come to pass afterward, is how he wrote it. Peter says, and in the last days it shall be. So he adds that phrase, last days. From Peter's perspective, listen, from his perspective in the first century, and from the perspective of the rest of the New Testament, the last days was ushered in when Jesus came the first time. Which means that the last days began about 2,000 years before any of us were born. This outpouring of God's Spirit was a last days event happening as it did near the middle there of the first century. Now say you have a friend who comes up to you and, and says to you, boy, I love apple pie, and I would sure love to have an apple pie. And you, because you're feeling generous, you promise your friend in that moment, and you say to them, an apple pie you shall have. I will bake you one. And then you bake the pie, you give it to your friend, and your friend takes it and eats the entire pie right there, experiences the pie that you had promised. So notice, we've gone there from your friend desiring a pie, right, to you promising a pie, and then finally to the actual experience of the pie, which you didn't get to take part in because your friend ate the whole thing. But that basic pattern, desire, promise, experience, is the biblical pattern of the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. Let me explain this so that we can deepen our appreciation of how this outpouring fulfilled the Old Testament Scriptures. So way back in Numbers 11, verse 29, Moses is talking. Moses expressed his desire way back in the Pentateuch, in Numbers, he expressed his desire that the Lord would put his Spirit on all of God's people. Moses said in Numbers eleven twenty nine, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So Moses there expresses his godly desire that the spirit of God would be poured out on all people. Well, much later in the history of the Old Testament, in that prophecy of Joel chapter 2, God says, in effect, an apple pie you shall have. Moses, you shall have what you desired. So in Joel 2.28, God promises, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then the experience of the pie, <laughs> the experience of what was promised, so to speak, is in our chapter, in Acts chapter 2, when what Moses had desired and what God had promised through Joel happens in the upper room. God pours out his spirit on all flesh. It was happening now because God fulfills his word. Amen? What's his record in fulfilling his word? It's a hundred percent. It's perfect. See, in the Old Testament days, the giving of the spirit had been restricted. It had been a limited sort of a thing. 
In the Old Testament days, the giving of the Spirit only happened here and there, only when God deemed it necessary in order to empower certain individuals for certain roles that they were playing, people like Joshua and David and Gideon, etc. But now at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, God was doing a new thing in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, God was pouring out his spirit on a whole lot of people at once. And actually, friends, in Acts 2.33, we find out that it's none other than the second person of the Trinity, the crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus Christ himself, who is the one doing this pouring out of the spirit of God on all of these people. And I want you to notice in the Joel prophecy that Peter is quoting here, I want you to notice this, listen. That there is a wideness of demographic in this pouring out of the Spirit. A wideness of demographic. The Spirit is poured out on all flesh. Amen? Hallelujah. On sons and daughters male and female, on young men and on old men. I'm 51, I guess I now classify in the old men (laughs) category. On lowly servants, both male and female. It's not reserved for the uppermost. It's also for the guttermost. So this is what we might call here a demographically indiscriminate pouring out of the Spirit. Jesus pours the Spirit out on all flesh. Hallelujah for that. Hallelujah for that. This outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2. What's happening here, friends? This is the birth of the New Testament church that you and I are now part of. This marks a new thing, the indwelling of the Spirit for all believers. Amen? Now, what's very important as we consider again the original prophecy in Joel chapter 2 that Peter's quoting here, what's very important for us to notice is that in the broader chapter of Joel 2, there is an appeal made to repent to turn to God, to be saved from God's coming judgment. So, in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, here's what we have. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me, hear God's heart, return to me with how much of your heart? With all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Contrite, broken-hearted repentance. Return to the Lord your God, for He is, and we go back to Exodus 34 here, He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in hesed, in steadfast love. 
so the prophecy about God pouring out his spirit in Joel chapter 2 is couched within a larger section where people are being called upon to turn to the Lord and be saved. So that there is a link then between the Spirit being poured out and people turning to the Lord for salvation. And guess what? As Peter follows Joel's prophecy in his sermon, it's salvation that he goes to next as he continues in verses 19 through 21. Watch this. Peter is moving now to salvation in Jesus and the need to be saved by Jesus. In verse 19, Peter continues by quoting Joel 2.30, but again, in his apostolic spirit-filled authority, Peter changes a few things from the original text. Peter has God saying here, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Peter makes a few changes to the original text in Joel here, but perhaps the most significant change that he makes here is he adds the word signs. Signs will be shown on the earth, blood and fire, and vapor of smoke. Now, they had just witnessed the tongues of fire, <laughs> right, in Acts chapter 2. But the, the signs that are mentioned here, this, the general atmosphere that is being described here is an atmosphere, listen, an atmosphere of judgment. Blood, fire, and smoke. These things are often connected with God's judgment in Scripture. What Peter is describing here and what Joel before him was describing is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, that great day that is still coming when God will judge the living and the dead. And this is confirmed to us in verse 20 when Peter quotes Joel 2.31, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before what? The day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So this business of the sun turning to darkness and the moon to blood is picked up again in Revelation 6 verse 12 when the sixth seal is opened and there is a great earthquake and the sun becomes black as sackcloth, and the moon becomes like blood. Again, friends, the atmosphere here is judgment. This is all about the coming great day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, when sheep and goats will be separated, when those who have believed on Jesus will be separated eternally, from those who have not. It is coming. Again, won't you notice in the passage how the Apostle Peter has connected the advent of the Spirit's coming at Pentecost 
with salvation in Jesus Christ. The Spirit being poured out was a cue for people to turn to the Lord and be saved. And our last verse this morning is verse 21. Quotation from Joel 2.32. Peter says, And it shall come to pass, Oh, good news, friends. And it shall come to pass that if you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and obey in your own steam and do works of righteousness, you'll be good with God. Does it say that? No. What it says is, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who is at the end of themselves, seeing that their own righteousness is like filthy rags as they stand before a holy God, and gets down on their face and calls upon the name of the Lord, that person shall be saved. Now in the original prophecy in Joel, the word Lord in this verse was all caps, L-O-R-D, capital L, capital O, R, and D. In other words, it was Yahweh in the original Joel prophecy. Everyone who calls upon the name of Yahweh will be saved. But here in Peter's sermon, in the context, the Lord who he mentions is who? It's Jesus, upon whom God has bestowed the name that is above every name. It's the name of Jesus that we must call upon in order to be saved from God's coming judgment. Jesus took the judgment on our sin on the cross. We must come and open our empty hands, because we got nothing. Empty, open our empty hands and receive him and turn to him and be covered in his sacrificial blood, declared not guilty by God because of Jesus. And we must do that today if we haven't done so already, if you're interested in escaping what is coming. My friend, Pentecost and the pouring out of God's Spirit happened in these last days, about 2,000 years ago. The Pentecost event happened way back in the past, right? But the second coming of Jesus Christ is still in the future to us. We don't know when he will come back, but we can be assured that he will. We live right now in that long period between Pentecost and the second coming of Jesus Christ. We live in this in-between time. It is a time of God's great grace. This time that we live in now. It is the time when verse 21 is directly applicable to us. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They're still time. And so I ask you very seriously, as we wrap this up and work toward a close, I ask you very seriously, have you done this? My friend, have you done this? 
Have you called on the name of Jesus for salvation? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you seen that even though you might be very clever, you might be a very intelligent person, you might be a very well-off person, a very successful person, a very well-educated person, have you seen that still, as you stand before God, your righteousness is like filthy rags? Have you seen that? And have you understood that you need a righteousness that is not your own? A righteousness that only comes from the perfect human being, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Have you recognized that your sin has to be forgiven by a holy God if you are to live abundantly and if you are to live eternally and that the only way, I want you to listen carefully, the only way that such forgiveness can ever happen is through the substitutionary sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. You may have been frequenting church for decades, but have never actually been saved by the grace of God. And so I plead with you this morning, with Peter, be saved. Listen to the Holy Spirit of God and heed what he is prompting you to do. Call upon the name of Jesus. There is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4, verse 12. Our passage this morning showed us how the last day's events at Pentecost fulfilled the prophecy in Joel chapter 2. The pouring out of the Spirit was in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, but that pouring out had a connection, didn't it, to salvation, to, to the salvation that God has worked in his Son and in the cross of his Son. The application for us is to believe. Many of us already believe, and we're thinking, well, there's not much application for me. This is more of an evangelistic morning. The application is for us to believe, to call upon the name of Jesus and be saved in this time of grace that we have been given before we die, in this time that we have been given before his second coming. I want to move us now to a time of prayer, and specifically for those of us who are already believers, let's take this time right now to pray for our loved ones and our friends and our co-workers, fellow students, anybody you know who is lost, who is not a believer. I want to give you some time of silence now to pray for that person or persons by name, and then I'll close us out. Our Lord God, you have shown us in the story of the thief on the cross that even if someone is on their deathbed in their final minutes, they can be saved. Lord God, all of us can think of a person or persons in our lives who we are just earnest in our pleading for that they would be saved. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that work for your glory that it would be your pleasure to save the people that we have named in our prayers here this morning. And Lord, we 
praise you and we thank you. We adore you for the salvation that you have given us. That is not, as we said in the parking lot a few weeks ago, as we were discussing with a brother, salvation is not dependent on our feelings, but it is assured to us by your word and by the spirit living in us. So Father, I pray, Lord, as we go into this week in our various roles and capacities that you would alert us to the lost people around us that, Lord, we would um, have compassion for them and care for them and patience with them and that you would uh, give us wisdom and insight, Lord, as to how to move beyond uh, talking about the election and sports and weather into more serious conversations that have to do with eternal destiny. Lord, give us wisdom, give us grace, give us power to do so. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for your sake. Amen.